0: Hello everyone, I'm Pastor Michael, and um, before I launch into the sermon, I just want to remark on this strange and unusual situation that we're in, and um, as I look out at everyone, it almost seems like we're inside of a dystopian novel um, set in the, in the not-too-distant future. But I really want to acknowledge and show my appreciation for all the volunteers that have made this in-person service possible. I want to show my appreciation to the church that is gathered here and the church that is gathered online, um, that God has sustained all of us through this, and we're not through it yet. We're just midway through the journey, and um, we're sustained by God's good providence. So let me begin. Um, As all of you know, since the death of George Floyd, there has been an intense and sustained national conversation on race in America. And I think that's a good thing. I think there should be more conversation, not less conversation. I uh, recently checked that uh, five of the ten best-selling books on Amazon are now on race. And I think that's great. I think people should be reading more books on this subject and many subjects. And as your pastor, I want to address this issue. And as you can tell, I've really taken my time in doing this. Uh, I have preached on race uh, before in different times and in different settings. But this time, I really wanted to take my time because I didn't want to just uh, give a quick take, but I wanted to take the injunction in James 119 seriously, which says, be quick to listen, be slow to speak, and slow to anger. And so I didn't just want to you know, jump into the fray and get into the mix of things and then possibly add more heat than light, but I really want my words... I really want my words to edify and to build up the body of Christ and to encourage your faith. Race is a difficult issue to talk about in America. And it's difficult to preach well on this. Not just because it's controversial. Actually, I I don't mind controversy. I have a kind of sick attraction to controversy. But because... The whole subject matter is so complex and there's so much debate and, and there's so much, so many layers and nuances to this discussion and, there's, and it's so multifaceted. And let me tell you, the literature is so vast and voluminous and I have tried my best to read as much as I can these past four weeks and I've been reading before then as well. But on top of that, this is a very emotional issue for people, where almost everything is contested. And so it's very hard to talk about this subject without activating people, without people you know, reacting and then also immediately lining up into their respective political camps. And so you can understand the challenge of preaching on this because I really want to speak... And I want to teach from the Bible. And I really want scripture to inform and to guide our thinking on this. But I don't want the clumsiness of my words. You know? I don't want my ill-informed, ignorant thoughts, and I, I make no pretense that I'm an expert in any of this, to be a stumbling block to you. And some of you are getting a little bit nervous, what is Pastor Michael going to say? But what I'm asking of you today is please listen to me generously. Please give me the benefit of the doubt. Please listen to the major points that I'm trying to make and then not get bogged down on any of the specifics of which I can be wrong and mistaken. Finally, let me say this. This is the first part first sermon in a two-sermon series. And so next week, next Sunday, I'm going to preach again on this subject. So I'm going to have two bites at the apple. And the way I want you to think about it is that this is a single unified sermon divided into two parts across two different Sundays so that you really have to listen to both sermons, okay? Both Sundays before you can make any strong conclusions, before you can draw any... um, strong uh, judgments. So with that in mind, let me give you the outline. I have three points. Number one, we're going to look at the problem of race. I'm going to spend actually half of our time on that. Number two, we're going to look at the doctrine of the Imago Dei. We're going to start to look at what is the Bible's response to this problem. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus's command that we are to love one another. And just a heads up, this sermon is going to be a little bit on the long side, so um, please bear with me, although I hope that it will be sufficiently interesting to make it worthwhile. So let's begin. First, the problem of race. And here I, I want us to begin from a posture of empathy and solidarity. I believe that this is a moment when we can listen to our black brothers and sisters. The Bible commands us to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. The Bible says we are to weep with those who weep. We are to mourn with those who mourn, Romans 12.15. And when we do that, right, when we listen to our brothers and sisters in the black community, what do we hear? We hear their pain and their grief. And their anger. One of the best articles that um, I've read in this time is uh, from the Gospel Coalition by Shai Lin. Shai Lin is a Christian hip-hop artist. And in the article, he goes on to recount a series of personal experiences, personal stories of just indignities of being a black man and being treated with uh, suspicion and distrust And there was one story, there was one anecdote in particular that really hit me, and I wanted to share it with you. It's very short. Let me read it for you. He wrote, One time, I was going to take a road trip with my sons to visit Blair's family in Michigan. And my greatest fear was getting pulled over for no reason other than driving while black, told to get out of the car, Handcuffed and sat down on the side of the road, utterly emasculated and humiliated, with my young boys looking out the window, terrified, which is exactly what happened to a good friend of mine when he took his family on a road trip. And when I read that, I started to cry because I can imagine that happening to my boys. I can imagine my boys looking out the car window with shock and shame. And here I want to say this whole question of police interactions with the black community is very complex, very fraught. Um, This past week I I read a really interesting article in the Wall Street Journal written by a uh, researcher from Harvard University, who had conducted this massive um, four-year analysis of all the police data. He and his team did this in-depth, extensive analysis of where they vacuumed up all the police data across the nation from 2000 to 2015. And he had two significant findings. And I offer this not as the definitive word, but just to help us to think through these issues... The two findings that he came to from the data is, first of all, that black men indeed receive additional scrutiny and attention from the police. He says this, whole, this statistic holds true even when you control for, for various factors and variables like uh, neighborhoods and crime rates. On the other hand, he says that when it comes to lethal encounters with the police, the data shows that there is, as far as he can tell, no racial disparity, no racial difference. He says no matter how you look at the data, he says you, know, you can look at it in terms of whether it was a uh, police-initiated encounter or whether it was received from a call. And so that's what he found. And he says that there were two other significant national surveys done which found those two same findings. Let me focus on the first one. I think the reasons for the additional scrutiny that black men receive from the police are themselves complicated. And perhaps partially um, that can be explained by poverty. We know that poverty brings you more in contact with the police, which itself is also a tragedy. And partially it may be due to racial bias how much and to what extent can be debated, again, the data is unclear. But the point I want to make here is that this is happening not just in law enforcement, but we see similar racial disparities in education, in healthcare, in employment. Even though there has been tremendous racial progress these past several decades, we ought not to forget the enormous sea change of the civil rights legislation in the 1960s so that we don't have strictly legally sanctioned racial discrimination anymore, although by no means is the work completed. There's still much work to be done. But that is something that we can celebrate so that African Americans now have access to every aspect of society in a way that they did not... 50 years ago. But we should also remember that the civil rights movement happened only 50 years ago. And the United States the history of the United States goes back much longer than that. And so we shouldn't forget the 250 years of slavery. We shouldn't forget the 100 years after that of lynchings and Jim Crow and segregation. And so we shouldn't be surprised at the deep and lasting trauma of those historical events and the wounds of that. And in particular, let me say, the enslavement of black folks is a deep scar in our nation's history. Several years ago, I read a really you know, powerful and stimulating book called Inhuman Bondage, by David Bryan Davis. It won the Pulitzer Prize, and it's the history of slavery in the New World. And the author, he begins the book by stating that slavery is as old as humanity. That every civilization that we have ever known has practiced slavery, from China to India to the Middle East to Africa and to Latin America. Every human civilization has practiced widespread slavery, but what made the Atlantic slave system, what made the Atlantic slave trade, which the United States was part of, so different and so virulent, was that it was racialized. You have to understand that before the Atlantic slave system, in the pre-modern world, slaves came from basically captives of war, or from debtors. And therefore, because basically you were were enslaving people who were largely your neighbors or people from neighboring territories, it wasn't racial. But then what happened is that with the advent of the European exploration, European slave traders would go down to Africa so that slavery became this black-white thing. And because it became this black, white thing, and, and that by the way is where we get our concept. It's where this word race, which comes from the Italian word razza, which means you know lineage or family, it's where we get this idea of race. And that became the justification. And so these white European traders, they saw the blackness of European of I'm sorry, of Africans as inherently inferior. And they saw Africans as not really human, as in fact subhuman, without human dignity. And if Africans are basically animals, then you don't really have to respect or honor black families. And so what happened in in the slave trade is that black families, uh, slave families, were constantly being split apart. And children would be separated from their mothers at a very young age and then sold in the slave markets. And we know that infant mortality rates among slaves was very high because the conditions were so brutal, the vast majority of children, infants and children, did not survive into adulthood. I want you to think about that for a moment, what the conditions must have been like. We know that in Brazil and in the Caribbean, which which received the vast majority of the Atlantic slave trade, they couldn't sustain their slave populations natively, but they had to constantly bring in this massive influx of new slaves because they were dying out so quickly. And it was only in the United States that the native slave population began to grow and reproduce itself, and only starting in 1808 when Congress prohibited the importation of slaves. When it banned the slave trade, it forced plantation owners to be ever so slightly more humane to their slaves that it allowed the children just enough of a fighting chance to survive, to become adults and bear children. It is hard to put into words the horror and the brutality of the Atlantic slave system and chattel slavery as it was practiced in the American South. Where does this evil come from? Where does racism come from? And I think it is not enough. It is insufficient to only look at the history of slavery and Jim Crow in the United States and say that's where, that's the explanation because... That doesn't go deep enough. But I believe that the Bible provides a much more satisfying and I think much more profound understanding of racism than what we see in the world. Because the impression that I get is that, you know, there are these racists that are out there. And there are these racists, and you have to identify them, you have to call them out. You have to cancel them and exclude um, and hound them out of the public square. And that will address the problem. But I think the Bible gives a much broader and I think a much more profound theological explanation. And here I want to to turn your attention to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 16. And let me just set the passage up for you. In the passage, Paul... I I just touched my face. I'm trying not to. (laughs) But... um, Paul, it's a very bad habit to break, hard hard habit to break. But in the passage, in Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about this long-standing conflict between Jews and between Gentiles. And actually, specifically, he's talking about Greeks. And you have to understand that there was this deep racial animosity between Jews and between Greeks. So let me read the passage for you. Actually, I'm just going to jump down to verse 13. Listen to this. Paul writes, And now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, and he's talking about Greek believers, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's a lot going on in that passage, very dense. But let me just draw your attention to that last final word, hostility. The Greek word there is the word echthros. I love that word because it sounds just like what it means. Echthros means hostility, it means enmity, it means hatred for your enemies. And you have to understand that in the ancient world, there was deep racial hatred between the Jews and between the Greeks. And there was a long and complicated history behind this in which there were centuries and centuries of grievances. And it began 300 years before this when the Greek Seleucid Empire came and conquered Judea. And not only did they occupy the Jewish homeland, but the Seleucid Empire tried to eliminate and annihilate the Jewish religion. They forbade Jewish religious practices and customs. And so it, it it elicited this strong Jewish counter-reaction in which there were revolutions and there were revolts, the most, uh, uh, the most successful of which was, was the Maccabeans. But it went on and on, war upon war, atrocities committed on both sides. And then even when the Romans, right, who were on the other side of the globe, came in, the hatred never ended. So that all across the eastern Mediterranean, in Roman cities, there were race riots, the most famous of which happened in Alexandria. Alexandria, historians estimate, had about 25% Jewish population, so they were in the minority, and then 75% was mostly Greek and in other ethnicities. And in Alexandria, in the year 38 AD, and then again in the year 40 This massive race riot broke out from this initial small incidents in which businesses were burned, people were dragged from their homes, they were beaten, they were killed, ethnic gangs would battle it out on the streets, and it raged on. The city would burn for months and months without end. Historians estimate that the death toll is somewhere around 25,000 to 50,000 people from these race riots. It's really hard for us to imagine the level of violence of, these, of this conflict. And then the way the Romans <laughs> tried to deal with this is that they would build walls. They would build walls around the ethnic enclaves, and then they would put Roman soldiers to patrol between the ethnicities. So this is what Paul is talking about in verse 14 when he says, Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's just, that's not just, you know, colorful metaphorical language Paul is talking about. He is talking about literal physical walls that were erected to keep the races separate. And Paul says that Christ, through his death, tore down the walls, and he made peace. This ancient blood feud that went back centuries and centuries, he made peace between the two people, uniting them into one body, into one new man in Christ. How did Christ do that? You have to look at the next verse, and it's really profound. In verse 15, Paul says, Christ did this by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's two things going on. There's two aspects. There's first a vertical aspect in which we are reconciled to God so that laws and ordinances are no longer the means by which we gain righteousness before God, But there's also a horizontal aspect in which we are reconciled to each other, and I want to focus on that horizontal aspect. What is going on here? And you have to understand, you know, let's do a little bit of sociology. The Jewish people, they looked at the Torah, they looked at all of the laws and the ordinances of the Old Testament about you know circumcision, keeping Sabbath, keeping the kosher food laws, all of the distinctives that made them a separate people from the Gentile world. And the Jews said, this is what makes me better than the Gentiles. This is what makes our people superior. And they would look down on the Gentiles. And you see this These deep-seated attitudes in Peter, for example, when he refused to eat with the Greek believers at Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. And if you read the book of Acts, if you read the Pauline epistles, you will see innumerable instances of distrust and hostility between Jews and Greeks worshipping together in the early church. A few years ago, I read a book by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind that just blew me away. Jonathan Haidt is a professor at NYU, and um, he's, looking at, uh, he's looking at morality, right? He's looking at the psychology of morality from the perspective of a scientist and an atheist. It's really interesting. And he says that human beings, all human beings, have this deep desire to be thought of as a good person. But then he says, how do you know that you're a good person? How do you know? He says, well, you can look at some religious code. You can look at the Bible. He says, but for the vast majority of people, that's too abstract. That's too difficult a standard. So the way most, the vast majority of people establish that they are a good person is that you compare yourself with other people. And the way you do that is you create an in-group and you create an out-group. And the in-group are full of people who are good, who are morally superior, and of course you include yourself in the in-group, and then the out-group you have to look down on, you have to despise. And he says the more judgmental you are, the more you, the more you show disdain and, and, and create separation to the out-group, he says the more you're establishing your own righteousness. He says, human beings, we are all driven by this deep insecurity of our moral standing. That is exactly what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. Where does racism come from? Why did the Jewish people look down on and have contempt for the Greeks? And why did the Greeks do the same for the Jews? And notice it goes both ways. It's not just the oppressor looking down on and despising the oppressed because in this case, it was the Jewish people who were oppressed. It was the Jewish, Jewish people who were a conquered and oppressed people so that it is, it is also the oppressed who hate and look down on the oppressor. Where does this come from? It comes from this universal human desire for self-righteousness. So that we're all drawing lines. We're all dividing people up into groups. And you know, everyone is doing this. We're just doing it with different categories. Some of us, you know, we do this with money. And so the rich look down on the poor. Have you ever seen the movie Parasite? Some of us do this with education. Some of us do this with athletic ability. And some people do this with politics. And actually, Jonathan Haidt says in his book that in our contemporary society, this is now one of the major ways that people establish their own righteousness. He says, and this is happening both on the right and on the left. And he says, this is why people love to read click articles that shows, that makes the other side look ridiculous, full of hypocrites, full of evil people. He says, it's it's just so juicy. It's just such a satisfying experience to mock the other side because it means that you're on the side of righteousness. And some people, many people, do this with their ethnicity. And rather rather than looking to Christ for their significance, they look to their ethnic heritage, they look to their culture, and they say, this is what gives me worth and significance. And then they look down on people who are different than them, who speak differently, who listen to different music, who eat different food, and we talk about them as if they are this out-group, those people, you people, and we show disdain, we show disregard, and we do not treat them as equals. The root of racism, which is the root of all sin, is self-justification. It is looking to Christ. It is, I'm sorry, it is not looking to Christ as a righteousness, but it is looking to some man-made thing, some human category. And therefore, when you encounter racism, do it not from a morally superior position. Do it not just to cancel somebody out from society. And I think this is where Christianity gives gives us much deeper resources for racial reconciliation and healing than in the world Because so much of the discourse that I see on media and social media is punitive, it's performative, it's just shaming people. But the Bible tells us we all struggle, all of us, with the same root sin. The same evil, vile heart that excludes that mistreats someone on the basis of their skin color lies in us as well. And therefore, if you encounter racism and you treat that person with contempt, if you treat that person as morally inferior to you, don't you see you're committing the same root sin, which is self-righteousness, from which racism comes? So we ought to guard our hearts. Even as we denounce racism. Even as we fight for racial justice and the Bible commands us that we must, and we're going to talk about that more in the next sermon, we must do so with humility, with compassion, with our hand ever extended in reconciliation with the offer of rehabilitation because no one is beyond the reach of grace. No one. All right, so that's my first point, the problem of racism. Sorry, the problem of race. The second uh, point is the doctrine of the Imago Dei. And here I want to look at what does the Bible, how does the Bible respond to this problem? And I want this to be just the beginning of a longer conversation. And there are many resources that the Bible gives us to address the problem of racial division Too many (laughs) to cover in this sermon. And we're going to look at more, but not all, next week. But I just want us to start with the foundational doctrine of the Imago Dei, which means the image of God. And the key text here is Galatians, sorry, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Let me read it for you. Then God said, Let us make man So this tells us that human beings are made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means this. Every human being possesses an infinite and inviolable worth and dignity and significance because we all bear this divine stamp We all bear the likeness of God, the Bible tells us. And we bear his likeness because we are his children. You have to understand that in the Bible, the language of being made in the image is the language of sonship. We see this clearly in Genesis 5, verse 3. When Adam fathered Seth, the text tells us Adam did so. Um, Adam's son was in his own likeness after his image. That should sound familiar to you, right? It's the same couplet, the same language we see in Genesis chapter 1, because sons look like their fathers. You may have noticed this, but Judah and Noah look just like me. And therefore, when they go out into the world, they go out as bearers of my image. And therefore, let me tell you, if you should mistreat them, if you should speak abusively to them, or even if you should show them disregard, you're not just offending my boys, you're offending me. And I'm going to take it personally. Do you understand how powerful this doctrine is. If you mistreat another human being, if you exploit them, if you manipulate them, if you should snub them, it is an insult to the Creator. And woe is you because God's judgment will come down upon you. Listen to Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Every human being deserves protection because of the Imago Dei. The Bible says all human life is sacred because we are made in his image, and you cannot transgress that. I want you to understand how radical this doctrine is because some of you you might say well isn't that sort of obvious all human beings have equal worth but you need to understand that's not what the ancient world believed in the ancient world they noticed all kinds of variations and differences among people they noticed that there were strong people and there were weak people Generally speaking, men are physically stronger than women. They notice that there are rich and there are poor. They notice that there are those who are valiant in battle and then those who are cowards and would run and hide. And to the ancient world, it was patently absurd that they should all have equal worth, that they should all be treated with equal dignity. Aristotle famously said, and he represented the ancient world in this, that human beings can naturally be divided up into masters and slaves. They were naturally masters and slaves. And the reason why, you have to remember again, slaves largely came from captives of war. And so Aristotle said, if you allowed yourself to be captured in battle, if you didn't have the guts to stand up and fight to the end, to the death, if you would rather surrender and so preserve your life, He says, then a life of servitude is what you deserve. It is fitting for your moral character. The ancient world believed this is the law of nature. Nature is red in tooth and claw. And in the natural world, the strong eat the weak. Why should human beings be any different? And into that world, let me tell you, comes Christianity like a bomb. And Christianity defended the dignity of slaves, of women, of the disabled, of infants in a world that practiced widespread infanticide. And Christianity, furthermore, asserted the equal dignity of all peoples from every ethnicity. Some of you are saying, that's lovely. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that Christianity came onto the scene. And in that sense, you know, Christianity is sort of like a bridge to the modern world because you know, we modern secular people, we believe the same thing. And that is true. We live now in a post-Christian world and you know, we where we largely hold on to the ethics of Christianity but without the beliefs of Christianity. And so the modern world believes in what we now call human rights which is really a secularized version of the doctrine of the Imago Dei but the point I want to make here is that there is no rational basis for human rights because where does human rights on its own terms in secular terms where does it come from? does it come from our laws? well laws can be changed does it come from popular will? well we know that People can be manipulated. Popular will can change, just like in Nazi Germany. And so in the face of all of these variations that we see in human capacities and human abilities, how do we know that all human beings have equal worth? If you read the literature, you know, we forget this, right? But if you go back and you read the literature of people who defended slavery and defended segregation... They justified it on the basis of these supposed physical and intellectual differences in the races. And there were all kinds of pseudoscientific arguments that arose, like eugenics. And they would do all kinds of things, like they would measure cranium sizes... And they would notice you know, physiological deficiencies and you know uh, diminished mental supposed diminished mental capacities that supported that justified black inferiority and this was not you know some fringe views of crazy people. this was the mainstream view. these were articles published in mainstream scientific journals. This is why. Jesse Owens winning the gold medal in the 1936 um, Berlin Olympics was such a shock, it was such a rebuke to Nazi ideology because that was completely unexpected. Some of you might say, well, that's an abuse of science, and that is true, but the point I want to make here is science cannot tell us the worth of human beings. Science can notice and describe all the variations in the human form, but it cannot tell us the equal worth and dignity of men and women, of able-bodied and disabled people, of black and white people. Only theology can do that. This is why when um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about black dignity, he didn't cite science, he didn't cite you know, the UN Charter on Human Rights, but he cited the doctrine of the Imago Dei. And let me read to you um, what he, something that he wrote. I think it's really amazing. This is what he said. Listen, there are no gradations. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Do you you know how profound and how far-reaching this is? Because all human beings, we possess this inherent dignity that comes from God And this dignity is not earned. It is not achieved through physical strength or wealth. And it cannot be lost. It cannot be lost by being captured in war. It cannot be lost through drug abuse or through incarceration. Because all human beings have this inerasable, irreducible, inviolable, Glory and worth. This is why, during the civil rights movement, one of the most indelible, one of the most powerful images to come out of that is African American men holding up signs, holding up placards that read, I am a man. I am a man. Do you know what that is? That is the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Last point. Jesus says we are to love one another. I want you to know that ultimately, ultimately, racism is a failure to love. It's a failure to love. Because it is not enough to merely tolerate someone's existence. It's not enough to say, I'm not a racist, but you know, I'm going to mind my own business, I'm going to keep my head down and not get involved in other people's problems. Because the persistent problem of racial inequities in the United States is not only because, not only the result of overt acts of racial hostility, but also the result of indifference. Also the result of a lack of care, a lack of empathy, and ultimately a lack of love. It's interesting that um, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is asked this question. He's he's, uh, told, Rabbi, the law says we are to love our neighbor. But who is our neighbor? And in response, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that parable, Jesus says that the neighbor is someone from a different ethnic group, a Samaritan, And you have to understand that in the ancient world, Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. There was deep racial strife and division, a long history of that. And so Jesus tells this story where a Samaritan is just going along his day, he's conducting his business, and then he sees a Jew, someone from this hated race. He sees a Jew lying on the side of the road, bleeding and injured, And then the Samaritan stops and he notices and he provides life-giving care and aid. Jesus says this is what it means to love your neighbor. In John 15 verses 12 through 13, Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. You see, love lays down his life for his friend. And I want to close by um, giving you a story. It's an extended story. Several years ago, I was watching um, a documentary on Mark Twain. And uh, I got so excited, right? It It was so good that... I reread one of his great classics, which is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And Huckleberry Finn is one of the great masterpieces in American literature. And the reason for that, one of the main reasons, is that Mark Twain in the book, he tackles this very difficult issue of race and the legacy of slavery. And you have to understand that Mark Twain, he was writing just a few decades after the Civil War. And he does it very effectively because he talks about race in a way that is disarming because he tells the story from the perspective of a child. And so the story is of this boy named Huck Finn who runs away from his alcoholic father and he gets onto this raft and he's going down the Mississippi River and early on in the, in the journey, he's joined by this runaway slave named Jim. And then the whole book is really this narrative arc of how their relationship between Huck and Jim develops. And there's this moment when they're on the river where Jim begins to speak more freely. And this is how Huck describes it. Listen to this he was saying how the first thing he would do when he got to a free state, he would go to saving up money and never spend a single cent. And when he he got enough, he would buy his wife. And then they would both work to buy the two children. And if their master wouldn't sell them, they'd get an abolitionist to go and steal them. Oh, it most froze me to hear such talk. Here was this black man, which I had as good as help to run away, coming right out flat-footed and saying he would steal his children, children that belonged to a man I didn't even know, a man that hadn't ever done me no harm. And so you can see right there, right, how scandalized Huck is, because Huck Finn, he grew up... Um, in the South, steeped in Southern culture and mores. And so he, he believed this very deeply, right? It creates this deep moral dilemma for Huck in the novel because he believes essentially that by helping Jim escape, he's participating basically in the theft of property because he had been taught all of his life that is what Jim is, his property. And then one night... Huck awakens to hear what he describes as moaning and mourning. And Huck realizes that Jim is crying for his family. He's homesick for his family. And he realizes that Jim, he cries often at night. And then Huck says one of the most significant things that has ever been said in American literature. Listen to this. He says, I guess, I guess Jim cares for his family the way white folks does for Darren. It don't seem natural, but I reckon it's so. I reckon it's so. And so you begin to see, right, Huck is gradually, gradually recognizing that Jim is not just a slave. He's a man. He's a father, he's a husband, he's a human being. But throughout the novel, he's tormented by this moral dilemma because he believes that he's committing this terrible sin by helping Jim to escape. And then the story reaches its moral climax when Huck finally decides to write a letter. And in the letter, he's telling Jim's owner where his runaway property could be found. And at first, Huck feels good about this. And he marvels at how close he came to being lost and going to hell. But then he hesitates. And he starts to think about their entire adventure on the river together. All the conversations and laughter and friendship. And then this is what it says... I took up the letter and held it in my hand. I was a trembling because I'd got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, all right then, I'll go to hell, and tore it up. When I read that line, I couldn't help but to tear up. Because you have to understand that for Huck, that was not just an expression of speech. He really believed that he was doing something wrong and immoral by not turning Jim in. And he really believed that he was going to go to hell for this. And in order to save Jim's life, he says, okay then, I'll go to hell. And he substitutes himself for his friends. And of course, you know, the great irony, if you want to do some literary analysis, this is the the genius of Mark Twain, is that this is the most deeply, profoundly moral thing Huck Finn ever does. And it's one of the great moments in American literature. You know, Mark Twain wasn't a Christian. And actually, at the end of his life, he becomes an atheist. And he hated Christianity. He thought of it as this huge sham religion. But I think it's interesting that the most beautiful thing that he could think of in this world is someone laying down his life for his friend. I believe that in Christianity, we have this great resource to heal and to mend this world. Because the gospel tells us that God in Jesus Christ He laid down his life for us. And on the cross, Jesus didn't just say, okay, I'll go to hell as an expression. But he actually does it. On the cross, he experienced infinite wrath, infinite judgment in our place. And when the power of that enters into your heart, when you look at the cross and you meditate on it, it will give you the strength and the courage to love your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is any human being who is lying on the side of the road crying out for help. Let me add one final note and then we're done. You know, I really want our church to be a community that stands against racial injustice. I want our church to do this, and we're going to talk about this more next week. But I want our church to do this standing at the foot of the cross. And what does the cross tell us? It tells us that we are sinners saved by grace. And if you really believe that, if you truly believe you are a sinner saved only by grace, then that will give you the humility that allows for real dialogue so that we can really listen to each other because you know there are differing viewpoints there are different life experiences and we can listen to each other we can have a dialogue with each other and i think this is where the church is so different than the world because in the world you know i don't see a lot of dialogue i see a lot of shouting I see a lot of posturing and recrimination. But the church can be and ought to be a safe place, a family, where we can practice together mutual humility, mutual love, and we can grow together in grace into the maturity of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, I know that in this sermon, I have not even begun to look at all the texts and all the rich passages that address racial reconciliation and unity. And the Bible addresses it so much. And we recognize, therefore, that this is not at the periphery of the gospel. It is at the cent- it is central to the gospel that Christ broke down the dividing wall of hostility between the races and made the two one making peace by the blood of the cross. And Lord, we know that if it is important to you, if you talk about it so much, it should be important to us. So we pray for strength. We pray for courage. We pray for wisdom and humility to live out the gospel that will bring healing into this broken world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.